science and technology. That is the iconic music introducing Mark Zastro, science journalist, every Tuesday morning. And thanks for joining us today. Great to be here. Uh, we're going to come on to some very difficult ethical questions surrounding embryo selection from China to Iceland. Also, the great American eclipse. What have we learned? Well, we've learned the president's happy to look at the sun without protecting his eyes. We've also perhaps learned some bigger scientific question answers. But um, what about this first? How the brutal landscape of primordial Earth gave rise to algae and complex life. That's right. So scientists have always wondered uh, throughout the evolution of life, how did we make the jump from single-celled organisms to the complex plants and animals that we see today? Because it was a transition that happened very quickly. When life began two billion years ago, it was only these single-celled microbes for 1.5 billion years. And it's only in the last half billion years or so that there have actually been life forms that you could actually see with your naked eye, you know, that we would recognize as plants or animals. And there's a certain irony or intrigue in that very statement, see with your naked eye, how eyes <laughs> emerged eventually from these organisms as they continue to evolve. It's right, just mind-blowing. One of the most amazing um, uh, amazing traits that we have evolved is is vision. You're absolutely right. And But in terms of you know how we made this jump, scientists have, have wondered, uh, is was it something to do with the species itself? Did, did life evolve some new ability? Like, you know, human intelligence is reshaping our species today, uh, which we'll come to later, and the entire planet? Or was it something to, to do with the environment? Because right around 700 years ago, as animals started to emerge, Earth was going through some incredibly huge climate shifts. It went from an ice ball to an intense greenhouse period that only lasted about 15 million years, and then back to an ice ball again. So there was a mm. lot going on in, uh, around this period of time, and it's hard to get a complete picture of how life was responding. So how does algae fit into this picture? We often talk about algae as being a bit of a scourge for our rivers and waterways and trying to get rid of it. Should we instead be welcoming algae as a distant cousin or something? That's right. Usually algae is an indicator of pollution and it's a big environmental issue. But in this case, we can be grateful for uh, its role in evolution because it turns out that this was one of the key factors happening at around this time. A new study out last week in Nature is essentially, it's a very detailed analysis of when algae evolved. It really nails it down, which is difficult to do because, of course, algae is so flimsy, it doesn't fossilize. So they actually had to look for trace chemicals of algae left behind in the membranes of other fossilized cells. But according to the study, it happened, the explosion of algae happened right around 650 million years ago. And that's right around the same time when all these climatic shifts were happening, when life was emerging. And it's interesting because algae is a very good food for all kinds of life. It, it basically, the, the calorie content is really, really dense compared to the single-celled organisms that were coming before. So this would have been much more appetizing to complex creatures. And the fact that we can now say it happens right in the middle of all these environmental changes and right as life was becoming so much more complex, it does strongly suggest that algae was one of these critical factors. It's not hard to uh, get algae popping up, even in my own fish tank at home, Mark. You leave the light on for too many hours and it just blossoms everywhere. But uh, imagining a world where that didn't happen and then suddenly it came out of nowhere, 
it, as I said before, kind of mind-blowing. And then when we get to complex life. Um, but we're going to shift now from human evolution then uh, to the present day, uh, a much thornier topic, because the rise of embryo testing in China's allowing parents to weed out diseases faster than ever. And while that might be a good thing to some, it also raises tricky ethical questions. That's right. Nature's David Cernoski reported last week from China on the growing use of testing embryos being created with in vitro fertilization and screening them for genetic diseases. Now, we've talked many times about how human gene editing, uh, for example, with the CRISPR gene editing system, might have a similar effect in the future, but this is actually happening now. It's happening already. The technique is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and it is available to couples that are using in vitro fertilization. A few cells are actually removed from the embryo itself, which means that you can run a whole battery of genetic tests on it to determine whether they have conditions like brittle bone disease, Huntington's disease, you know, kidney diseases, deafness. It's the whole gamut. You know, anything that you can do a genetic test on, you can do, and then select out should you choose to terminate the pregnancy. And so these techniques are now becoming quite common in China with the rise of in vitro fertilization after the ending of the one-child policy. And some clinics are doing tens of thousands of IVF procedures every year. And embryo testing is relatively cheap to add. It raises those ethical questions about disability, even the spectre of eugenics. Do we devalue the lives of those already with disabilities if we're terminating fetuses with, uh, with those conditions? To a certain extent, many of us will have faced those questions already when we're asked, for example, would you like to test your uh, unborn baby for Down syndrome? Right. Because the implication, and I've been through this here in Korea, Mark, at a certain Catholic hospital, in fact, and, and I thought, well, what's the implication here? Is the implication that, you know, I need to know so that uh, I, would, I would then terminate that pregnancy, which I made clear to the doctor I had no intention of doing? Uh, to some, that can be really quite offensive, Right. It's a, it's a deeply personal, it, it gets at these deeply held beliefs about the value of life. Well, it's, it's also very expensive, these tests. Life. So it's not just out of curiosity. You, you know, you're, you're undergoing the costs, presumably with an agenda. But anyway, tell us what we know in China, for example. Right. Well, in, in China, you kind of have this perfect storm right now where you do have the end of the one-child policy, but then also the stigma against disability is quite high. And uh, there's not a, uh, not a lot of support for people with disabilities existing in the country. So there is very little ethical pushback. It's, it's not even really seen as an ethical issue. Uh, it's simply seen as, as giving children better lives. I mean, that's, that's a generalization. But uh, it, it, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that there is less concern there than in other parts of the world. As you say, other countries and other cultures feel very differently. For example, this same genetic diagnosis technique has actually been used in the U.S. by deaf couples to select for deafness, to ensure that their children will be deaf in order to preserve deaf culture. So, you know, th there's a lot, as you say, this is very tricky and there's a lot going on here. For the Down syndrome question, in the U.S., termination of fetuses known to have Down syndrome is at 67%. It rises to 98% in Denmark. Right. As a comparison, right. So it, it 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 as you say, it just goes to show it's not really an East versus West issue. It's 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 something that all cultures in different ways are going to be grappling with. That there, there are people with Down syndrome. You can go online and you can watch them 
give interviews saying they wouldn't change their condition for anything. That's part of who they are. Mm-hmm. Let's Absolutely. leave that one for now and touch on one of the biggest science stories of the week, uh, the total solar eclipse and President Trump at the centre of this. Again. Well, rather unfortunately, I mean, never, just don't look at the sun, you, you, unless it's in totality. P- please don't. Just a few seconds, that UV radiation that, that fries your skin, that, right, that can easily zap your eyes and cause, a, cause permanent blindness. In just a matter of seconds. But here we don't have any eclipse to worry about anyway, and That's it's right. over now in the US. But if you ever find yourself in that situation, what, what have we learned from this eclipse, just to sum up though, Mark? Well, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, you know, we tend to think of eclipses as rather predictable, and most of the observations that astronomers make are, are kind of for, for fun. It's just, it's nice to see the, the, the sun as it is eclipsed. But one of the areas where we're still learning a lot is where is how animals and wildlife actually respond to solar eclipses. Because, of course, they can't predict and or know what is going on. And so scientists over the years in all sorts of eclipses have observed the activities of insects, birds, even hippos, uh, some of which react to the eclipses by going into their nighttime routine. Uh, you see mosquitoes often become active and coming out to bite unsuspecting eclipse watchers. Uh, bats come out, birds usually go quiet. So a lot of scientists around the U.S. were actually setting up cameras on animals to observe during today's eclipse. For example, the University of Missouri uh, was observing chickens. The California Academy of Sciences actually asked citizen scientists to report any changes they might observe using a smartphone app so that they could crowdsource these observations. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Even though these are so predictable, we still have a lot to learn. We'll be looking out for those findings. I wonder if there were any cocks crowing as, as it became light again. Mark Zastro with our science and technology. Thank you. Thank you. And that is our show for today. We'll be back with the latest edition of This Morning tomorrow at 7.05. But stay with us for Careerscape and Cardation after your latest news headlines next.